Our scripture reading is from Philippians 2, 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as the lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. God, this morning we worship you as the good Father who sent your Son into the world to be our Savior. Lord, this morning I just pray that you'd um, save us from our false attempts at self-salvation. Save us from our um, ridiculous ideas about the fact that we think that we know best. God, pour out your wisdom upon us this morning. Change our hearts by the power of the gospel. And Lord, by the by the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning, minister your word into our lives, into our hearts, and into this church. We humble ourselves before your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, through this Christmas Advent uh, season, we're working through Philippians chapter 2, and we're also looking at the values that we have as a church. And so we looked at relationship. And we looked at humility, and this week we're looking at truth. And so I would love, if you have a Bible, to have it open to Philippians chapter 2 uh, this morning as we talk about truth. Uh, we live in a day in which there is a crisis of truth. Uh, all of us, at all, all times and all places, like everybody has always struggled with truth on one level, right? Like all of us have maybe known that there are things that are true, and yet we fail to live up to those truths but the time and place that we find ourselves in is a little bit different from that. Our truth crisis actually goes a little bit deeper. We live in a day, in a place and in a time, where people both believe and are taught to believe that truth is relative. In other words, uh, what that means is that truth equals what is true to you. And while that might not seem like a big deal, like maybe that's just harmless, like, okay, whatever, just let people believe and do whatever they want, the problem is if you look around at the world in which we live in today, we are witnessing what happens. The chaos, the confusion, the constant friction and contention. We are witnessing what happens when 300 million truths are competing at the same time. In John chapter 18, Jesus is on trial at the end of his earthly life, and he's having this conversation with the man Pilate, who would actually be the one to sentence Jesus to death by a crucifixion. And this is the conversation they have. It says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Christianity is about truth, and Christmas is about truth, and those who love and follow Jesus value truth, 
And we are called to join Jesus in bearing witness to the truth. But here's the problem. How do you bear witness to the truth in the midst of a society that thinks truth is relative? How do you bear witness to the truth with Jesus in the midst of an incoherent and illogical generation? Well, there are different kinds of arguments. Uh, yes, there are verbal arguments, right? I'm sure you've, you've been in plenty of verbal arguments where you are talking back and forth with someone else, but that's not the only kind of argument. There are arguments that are verbal, but there are also arguments that are won by demonstration. And that's what the 1947 Dodgers baseball owner Branch Rickey understood when he chose Jackie Robinson as the first Afri African-American baseball player to break into the major leagues. If Branch Rickey had just gotten up and yelled at everybody, like, this is what's true, this is what's true, this is what's true, he would have never broken through. But he knew that he needed a demonstration of truth to cut through the incoherence, to cut through the lack of logic. As author Jeff Robinson recounts, Ricky told Robinson that he signed him to break the color barrier because of his guts. To which Robinson asked, you want a player who has got the guts to fight back? And Ricky replied, no. I want a player who has got the guts not to fight back. The best argument wasn't a logical one. It was a demonstrated one. Jackie Robinson cut through the incoherence. He cut through the ridiculousness, not by just being right, but by living beautifully. And so, this is what we're going to see today. We're going to see that Paul is writing to a church that found itself in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. And what he doesn't call the church to do is to scream at the crooked and twisted generation. What he doesn't call them to do is to grumble and complain and argue with the twisted and crooked generation. What he doesn't call them to do is to seclude themselves away from the twisted and crooked generation. And what he certainly does not call them to do is to crook and twist themselves ever so slightly as close as possible to the twisted and crooked generation while sprinkling a little bit of Jesus fairy dust on top. What is the strategy for the church when she finds herself in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? The strategy is to cling to the gospel. But here's the deal. Clinging to the gospel is more than just being right. Clinging to the gospel is more than just embracing the truths intellectually. Clinging to the gospel means that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus actually enters in to the control room of our hearts so that his life, his death, and his resurrection becomes more than just truth that we embrace intellectually, and it becomes truth that we embody corporately. We begin to die with Jesus. And when we begin to die and rise with Jesus, when we begin to allow his story to transform our story, then and only then will we be able to cut through the inconsistency, cut through the lack of logic, 
Only then will the light of Jesus be able to pierce this dark world. So we need truth, and we need it not just in our heads. We also need it to shape everything about our lives. And so this is what we're going to do today. I ask you to open up your Bible. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And we're going to be looking at six reasons that we need truth. Six reasons that we need truth. And here's the first one. We need truth if we're going to be a faithful church because we need an authoritative standard. We need an authoritative standard. Verse 12 begins, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, uh, I know that living in a culture where there's a crisis of truth, the word obey is like hearing nails on a chalkboard. The word obey is like everything anti-American. But here's the lie that we believe. We believe that there's only two options. That on the one hand, there's the option of obey, and then on the other hand, there's the option of freedom. But that is not the story that the Bible tells. The fact that we were made by God means that we are going to obey someone. So the two options are not obey and freedom. The question is, who will I obey? Who will win over the allegiance of your heart and my heart? Um, I think we've all become a little too familiar with the word mandate over the last two years. Um, I had honestly never really heard that word or used it in everyday vocabulary, and I feel like it's just become this regular thing now, a part of our lives. But here's something I've learned uh, over the last two years about obedience, about mandates, is that there are different ways to call people to obedience. There are different ways to uh, release, to package a mandate. Uh, a few months ago, went into a store. We were in sort of one of these uh, weird in-between times where it was like mask, no mask, not really sure, kind of in-between. Everybody was kind of, ah. And I uh, went to the store without a mask on, and one of the workers at the store comes walking my way, and I just brace for impact. I'm like, oh, I, got, I already got scolded three weeks ago at another store. Like, I don't really want this again. But instead, instead of being scolded by an employee, this is what happened. This sweet girl walked up to me, and she said, Sir, would you like a mask? Now listen, I didn't want to wear a mask, but when she asked that way, I literally just couldn't refuse her. It's like I wasn't going to be a jerk to this person who was just so nice to me. So I said, thanks, and I put the mask on and I went shopping. When God commands us to obey, his commands really are mandates. But here's the deal. When God commands us to obey, it's always for our good, and it comes in a package that is hard to refuse. See, this little word, the very first word in verse 12, therefore, means that Paul is grounding our obedience in something else. He is saying, hey, you ought to obey because of this. And the because of this is a package that is hard to refuse. It points back to the gospel truths that we looked at last week as we talked about humility in Jesus Christ. There's three strands of truth which ignite motivation for obedience. This is Jesus winning over our allegiance. We're going to obey someone, and this is the Bible's attempt to persuade us to obey Jesus. Three strands of truth that we see here. The first is found back in verse 11, where it says, 
Jesus Christ is Lord. Why obey? Because here is your proven standard. In a world full of voices, full of opinions telling us what to do, who should we listen to? How about the guy who rose from the dead? And then the next strand of truth is found in verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So why obey? Because the perfect man and the most joyful man who ever lived obeyed God perfectly. And his obedience is both our example and his obedience is our salvation. And then the third strand of truth, the third motivational truth to get us excited about obedience is found in verse 9 where it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. See, we obey because we have seen the reward. We have seen that after the cross comes the resurrection, and after the resurrection came the ascension. That for those who align with Jesus, their future is glory. And so obedience is worth it. We need truth because we need an authoritative standard, and we are going to obey someone. So we might as well obey the the person who's the Lord of the universe, the person who laid down his life for us, and the person who showed us what God does with those who obey. That in faith, as we follow Jesus, we can be assured that following him means that we will also be glorified with him. Now, I do think Paul is kind of signaling, I think this applies to obedience in general. He does have something specific in mind, and that's where we move next. So the second reason that we need truth is that we need a better pursuit. We need a better pursuit. Let's pick up in the middle of verse 12. Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, Truth does relate to facts that we believe, but truth is more than just facts. Truth is also the stories that we believe, the stories that we buy into. We don't even realize it, but so much of the stress and anxiety that, that, that comes in our lives comes from us trying to work for our salvation. Working for our salvation is a world of difference from what Paul says here, to work out our salvation. And the stories that you and I are being marketed to buy into are what I would call work for your salvation stories. Let me just give you one example. Here's one example of a work for your salvation story that I see at play right now. Here it is. All moms are perfect. They work full-time, raise their kids full-time, they are full-time home interior decorators, they cook, clean, work out, read, take a nap, make all their husband and kids' dreams come true, and spend time with a few friends every single day. This is a work-for-your-salvation story that is crushing our moms. And that's just one example. Here's the formula. Unrealistic vision for my life 
plus achievement mindset equals shame and burnout. And it's not just moms. You, you, could, you could fill that in. Some story that you're being enticed, some story that you're being marketed, unrealistic vision for your life plus achievement mindset equals shame and burnout. But Paul, this apostle, he is a messenger of good news. Paul is commanding us to stop working for our salvation and instead to work out our salvation. Here's the, here's the gospel formula. Here's the formula of Christianity. God's vision for your life, Christ's achievement, equals a gratitude fueled pursuit of all that God has given me in Christ. That's the gospel formula. God's vision for your life, Christ's achievement, a gratitude-fueled pursuit of all that God has given us in Christ. Here's the image I have in my mind of what working out your salvation looks like as opposed to working for your salvation. Uh, Every couple years, I buy a new phone, and uh, I'll, t- I'll buy the phone and I'll, I'll get one of those little plastic screen protectors and I'll, I'll plop it down on top of my phone. Now, for all practical purposes, at that point, the phone is, is good to go. But there's these little air bubbles underneath. And so what I have to do is I have to work out the air bubbles to the edges. I have to press them out like this. I have to work it out so that the, the screen protector can actually function the way that I want it to. What Paul's teaching us here is that the goal of every church And the goal of every Christian is to press out this salvation, to work out the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus into every corner of our lives and into every corner of our churches. This is the better pursuit that God is calling us to. There's a phrase there in verse 12, fear and trembling. Maybe you're thinking... You know, what's that all about? Uh, Fear and trembling doesn't mean that I have to somehow be scared or afraid that maybe I'm not doing enough and maybe I have to work harder. Maybe, like, like, is Christianity just another version of this work for your salvation thing? No, 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 no. Fear and trembling simply means that it takes a grip on our whole lives. That this new pursuit of no longer working for our salvation, but based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus pressing out our salvation, is something that should capture you completely. It should own you. And it's not just another work for your salvation story because of what verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, this is both God's vision for your life and this is the place that God has promised to throw his power in your direction as you pursue this in your life. It's almost like this, like if working out our salvation means to press out the cor- to the corners, every corner of our life, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then as we press, what we realize is that God's hand is actually the one pressing for us. That as we begin to work out our salvation, we realize that we're working in the same direction as God. All these Work for your salvation stories, they go against God. The, 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 the burden to accomplish them is on our shoulders. The burden to achieve is up to us. 
But when we cast off that false story of work for your salvation and we embrace God's story of work out your salvation, we find the wind at our backs. We realize that this is what God is desperately at work at for us. So we need the truth because we need a better pursuit. These work for your salvation stories that we're being marketed They want our money, they want our hearts, they want our affections, they want our vote. They promise a great life, they promise the dream that we want, and then they just crush us. We're exhausted, we're worn out, trying to achieve some unrealistic vision in our own strength which just leaves us broken. But God needs nothing from us. And that's what makes this a better pursuit. At the end of verse 13, right on the heels of this phrase, His good pleasure, Paul then turns to what maybe at first seems like a a new thought, uh, but as we'll see, it's actually very closely connected to this phrase, His good pleasure pleasure. And so third, third reason we need truth is that we need an inward humility. Now I'm going to read verse 14 and then let's just take a second and laugh at ourselves. Verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. (laughs) That's good, right? I mean, I feel like I don't even have to try to convince you that this verse is about you. Right? It's like, it, it just catches us all. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Ouch, right? Like, there's no escaping that one. But here's what we have to do with stuff like grumbling and disputing, is we have to f- follow the symptom down into the root. Why? Why do we do this? Why are we so bent on looking out for our rights and our opinions and our truth. See, if we believe that even, if, even in our greatest efforts, that it is actually God who's at work, and it is God's will in our lives, and if we've given up on pursuing our pleasures, that's why the end of verse 13 matters, if we've given up on pursuing our pleasures, and we've signed up for pursuing His pleasures, then we have a whole lot less to argue and grumble and dispute and complain and fight about. See, this whole your truth, my truth thing, it's just a recipe for friction. It is just a recipe for everyone being angry and frustrated and polarized and disappointed. But when we come up underneath God's truth, and we sign up for his pleasures, then we find that there's actually like a real joy to like, I actually don't have to be angry all the time. <laughs> I actually don't have to be cynical and touchy and <clears throat> jumpy towards everybody in my life because I'm not, I'm not clinging. I'm not holding on to my truth anymore. I'm not clinging to my rights and my opinion. I'm ready to die with Jesus. 
Last weekend, Allie and I went to Savannah uh, for her birthday. And uh, one of Allie's afternoon activities that she wanted to do for her birthday was to rent and ride a tandem bike. Now, everything seemed great uh, until two things happened. First of all, I was a little interested that we had to sign a waiver. Okay. Uh, As we're signing the waiver, the nice lady asks, are you guys married? And Allie and I in unison kind of respond like, yes. And then she said, how long have you been married? And Allie said, seven years. And she said, okay, you should be fine. I thought, I kind of had this look on my face. And she said, yeah, usually the people who take the tandem bike out and come back a few minutes later frustrated haven't been together very long. Because one person actually has to take charge, and then you have to communicate uh, really well along the way. I can tell you that after four hours of riding around Savannah on a tandem bike, uh, truth is not relative on a tandem bike. When you put two truths on one bike, it equals disaster. Uh, I am certain that there have been many ruined vacations in Savannah on that tandem bike. The reason that we argue and grumble and complain and grum and, and dispute so much is because we still think we're in the driver's seat of our lives. We still think it's our truth that matters. Even in the church, that's what the whole of Philippians 2 has been about. Living a life consistent with the gospel means looking to Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. I mean, he put himself underneath. And that's why you'll you'll be hard-pressed to find a a moment where you saw Jesus grumbling. And you'll be hard-pressed to find Jesus fighting. Because he just was so humble. He had an inward humility that led to a, a, a beautiful life. If you've never read the Gospels, I just encourage you, read the Gospels and just marvel at Jesus. He is so beautiful. It's so amazing to watch a life submitted to the Father. We need truth because we need an inward humility. Now we're going to turn to see what I think is the very bottom of Paul's heart for this church. Uh, We can't survive without truth because fourth, we need a genuine purity. We need a genuine purity. Here's what I think is the heart of the passage. Verse 15 continues, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, When a child is adopted into a family, it's a marvelous thing. The family gets the opportunity to love that child. The family gets the opportunity to care for that child, to shape the life of that child. But what a family cannot do when they adopt a child is change the DNA of that child. But that's not true when it comes to our relationship to God. When God adopts us into his family, he actually changes our spiritual DNA. We are born again by his spirit. That's why Paul says here that we are children of God. And so what that means 
is that to walk in his purity is not stuffy. To walk in his purity is freedom. To walk in his purity is to embrace the new DNA of our Father. And that is real freedom. That is who we were made to be. That is the humaneness that comes when we embrace what God has given us through the new birth of his Spirit. And all Paul is saying is, hey, he's saying, get excited about your Father. Get excited about following the one who adopted you and saved you and brought you out of death and brought you into life, that walking in his purity is a privilege. But here's the misconception that we're battling. Here's the misconception that I battle every day. I think that what Jesus needs from me and from our church more than anything is for us to be cool. I mean, guys, Christians can be normal. Christians can be cool. Like, that is the misconception that, is, that wrecks my life a lot of times. Here's a little moment of honesty. As Paul is writing to this church, if you could kind of sum up in one word what he longs for them, that one word would be contrast. And if I'm honest, as an American Christian, the word contrast is like an allergy. You're telling me you want there to be something different about my life? Here's the deal, guys. Christianity is weird. There's just no way around it. Like, we believe weird stuff about what you're supposed to do with your money. We believe weird stuff about how you're supposed to handle romantic relationships. We believe weird stuff about the priorities that you're supposed to have in your life. We believe weird stuff about how the world began, why we all exist, and how the world's going to end. We say weird things. There's no getting around it. And Christianity is weird, and, and this is what I'm having to embrace, is that that's not something to apologize for. That's not something to neglect. That what Paul wants for this church is to be a light in the midst of darkness. To shine when everything seems like it's falling apart. Doesn't that sound like an awesome opportunity for us? When the world is nuts, things are totally breaking down, everybody's anxious and scared, and here's our call into the game. Boom. Jesus saying, let me shine my light on you so that people can see that there's another way, so that people can see they don't have to drown in these work for your salvation stories. not a huge fan of art, uh, more of a music guy myself, but every so often I'll see a painting or uh, a drawing or something and I just think like, wow, like how did someone do that? You know, like how did they just envision that and you know, put it out there and just so cool. And uh, here's the thing about art though, 
What makes art beautiful is contrast. Like if all we had was one color to work with, <laughs> we'd be in trouble. Like even a black and white sketch, right? It's like, it's the contrast that creates the beauty. And this is what God is telling to us, talking to us, saying to us this morning. This is his prophetic word into our lives in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. I want you to shine as lights. That as you work out your salvation into every area of your life, and as you collectively as a church work out your salvation into every area of the church, you're able to cut through the inconsistency. You're able to cut through the lack of logic, and you're able to present the beauty of what the gospel can do in your life. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Like, There has never been a better time to get serious about following Jesus. There's never been a better time. There's never been a better time to get excited about the awkward truths of Christianity. People are desperate. People are broken. People are hurting. And they are looking for a better option. And if we get stuck in verse 14, grumbling and disputing and complaining and arguing, we won't be able to, follow, to show them that there is a better way. If we get stuck being marketed towards these work for your salvation stories that we buy into, and instead of working out our salvation through the power of God, then we'll lose the opportunity that we have. This is a great day for you to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to take Jesus seriously. I'm going to get weird, and I'm just going to love his word. I'm going to pick up this old book that's like thousands of years old. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to say yes. Today would be an awesome day for all of us to say, you know what? I'm going to throw off the old stories, and I'm going to say yes to Jesus because it's what the world needs. All right, let's move on. But not really. Maybe you're the kind of person that's sort of a how-to person. You're a, okay, you, I'm in, I'm sold. What do I do? How do I do this? Um, verse 16 is, is where Paul takes us. Fifth this morning, fifth, we need an immovable anchor. We need an immovable anchor. Verse 16 starts out saying, holding fast to the word of life. This is the how-to. How do we obey Jesus? How do we work out our salvation into every area of our lives? How do we throw off the old stories and embrace the new story? We do it by clinging with everything we have to the Word of God. We do it by filling our hearts and our minds with this, what he calls the Word of Life. I recently was captured by this uh, story, uh, this, this, this um, video series about these guys who go into storms. They go into hurricanes and tornadoes and stuff. Like, they say they're doing it for science, but I don't believe them. They just like, seem like they're crazy guys that like to do stuff. And, uh, but this one guy, he did invent this really cool thing. It's this really cool contraption that's supposed to catch uh, the wind speeds that come off the, the coast on these hurricanes. And the reason it, it captured my attention is because the, the way he would secure this really, really expensive instrument 
that would catch these wind speeds is he would attach it to a palmetto tree. And that resonated with me because, you know, this is Palmetto Shores Church. We live in South Carolina. I was thinking, wow, this is cool. The reason he attaches it to a palmetto tree is because the palmetto tree has a unique ability to withstand the wind and the storms. And so he knows, hey, I can attach this, this contraption to this palmetto tree. 160 mile an hour winds can come through, and in a couple days I'll go back and it'll still be there. He would wrap it around the tree like with this winch, and he would just winch it down. And, and, and the picture I have in my mind is like, that's what our lives should be on the word of God. We should cling. We should hold. It should, be, uh, it should be everything we have to have hope, to have security in this world, to be clinging, holding fast to the word of God. And so we need truth. We need truth because we need an immovable anchor. And we see a story that Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that kind of explains what life can look like when we cling to the word and what life looks like when we don't cling to the word. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But then he shares another picture. So we can hear his words, love them, and do them, obey them, and that will be the picture. But then he shares this picture. And everyone who hears these words of mine, in other words, they go in their ears, they hear them, It's not like they're not hearing. Oh, they're hearing it. But does not do them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. All of us are building our lives on something. All of us are attempting to stabilize our lives with something. The question is this, have we built our lives upon the sand? In other words, popular opinion, the current trends, our gut, the intuitions that we have, have we built our lives upon things that change, things that shift, things that like in 10 years won't be true anymore? Or have we built our lives on the solid rock of the word of God? The word of God that's immovable. The truth that does not change through the ages. We can either build our life on the sand and we'll we'll get washed away. Or we can build our lives on the rock and we'll be wrapped tight. Immovable. So we need truth. We can't be the church without it. Uh, But there's one more thing Paul taps into. I'm excited. We're going to pick right back here next week. But there's one last thing at the end of verse 16 that we we need to see uh, about truth this morning. This will be kind of the the conclusion uh, to the message today. Finally, we need truth because we need a substantial outcome. We need truth because we need a substantial outcome. The end of verse 16 says, So that in the day of Christ, 
I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is teaching us something important about the world in which we live. He's teaching us that even though it may not seem this way, truth will reign. Uh, That there may seem like for a time that truth is veiled, but there will be a moment, there will be a day, and that day will be the day of Christ when all truth will be revealed. Uh, See, we, we, we learned a few weeks ago that Advent just means the arrival. So Christmas, we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. We're celebrating the arrival of the Savior. And at the first arrival, we learned, this is what we read at the very beginning of the sermon from John 18, we learned that when Jesus came the first time, He came as a witness to the truth. But when the second Advent comes, when Jesus arrives again, He won't be coming as a witness. He will be coming as a judge. The first Advent, Jesus came as a witness to the truth, but the second Advent, Jesus will come as the judge according to truth. And here's why this matters. Look at the last three words of verse 16. Labor in vain. Man, there are some hard workers in this church. There are some folks who get up every day and you labor. You give your all. What Paul is teaching us is that there's a day. It's the day of Christ. It's a day when truth will be revealed. And there's a chance that we will have worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And it will have been for nothing. Man, how sad. How scary. What's gripped Paul's life, what he's calling us into, is to let go of those work-for-your-salvation stories and to embrace with fear and trembling working out our salvation. Because if we give ourselves fully to that, if we sign up for God's good pleasure, then on that day, on the day of Christ, on Jesus' day, when we realize that all of history was actually about Him, we will have something to be proud of, Paul says. Not proud of in ourselves, but proud in the Lord. Those are the two options, guys. It's just like obedience. It's not about obedience or not obedience. It's about who are you going to obey. And the same thing is true with work. You're going to work either way. You're going to labor either way. You can either labor for your own sort of fake idea of salvation, and it'll all be worthless. Or you can work out your salvation in fear and trembling, and you'll have something to be proud of. And that's why we value truth here at Palmetto Shores. How could we sum this all up? The church of our generation could cut through the irrationality and cut through the inconsistency not by just being right, but by living beautifully. 
And the only way that we will live beautifully is if the gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus actually gets worked out into every area of our life. If the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, actually takes up residence, not just intellectually in our heads, but into the operating center of our hearts. And as we begin to die with Jesus, as we begin to go low and humble ourselves with Jesus, as we submit to the truth of God with Jesus, then we might be able to cut through the chaos. We might be able to, like he says here, shine like stars in the darkness. And so that's what we're after here. That's what we're going for here. That's what we're praying for here, is that the gospel would actually hit us on a deeper level than just our heads, that it would capture our hearts and that it would grip our lives. And here's the promise, 4, verse 13, 4, it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, as we've been working through Philippians, the call is to live lives worthy of the gospel. The call is to be a church who is consistent with the gospel. And Lord, I'm so thankful today that you've already promised us the power. You've already promised us that you will do this in us. Lord, all we have to do is submit. All we have to do is lay down and get out of the way. And so, God, I pray that you would help us today to lay down our death grip on our truth, to lay down our death grip on our opinions and our rights and what we think is best, and to wholeheartedly pursue your plan, and your vision through the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray you would continue to make this a church where we cling to your word because we believe that your word is life. And so, Lord, hide it in our hearts and work it out into our lives together. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.